This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today it's time for another installment in the We Need to Talk About series. And we need to talk about Dr. Phil. Now, Dr. Phil hasn't necessarily done anything recently that's sparking me wanting to do this episode, aside from the fact that his daytime talk show is going to be ending this year, and he's moving to a different venture. But I do think that overall his career is a very fascinating look at a psychologist in the media, and I figured why not talk a little bit about Dr. Phil. I will disclose that I did see Dr. Phil live at the American Psychological Association convention in 2018 in San Francisco, which was wild. He was invited to give this talk for Psychi, which is like a professional organization for undergraduate and graduate psychology students. So he had been invited to kind of talk about his career and kind of like, this could be you one day pep talk. He talked about mostly his media empire with his son. They executive produce a lot of shows, including his show, The Doctors, the one that has Dr. Oz on it. He also, they do a lot of like law shows. I think his son is actually a lawyer, but don't fact check me on that. <laughs> but they they basically have created a, a media empire together. And then his wife also, like she writes books and they do some things together. So he was he was outlining all of that. I was not a huge fan of him at the talk. I definitely was familiar with him growing up. Like, my mom watched a lot of Dr. Phil. Um, I think it is a show for moms. <laughs> and I, so I was familiar with him and kind of like the, the gist of the show. But he just comes across very arrogant. And he did this exercise where he asked the crowd to raise their hands if they when they were little would say, I want to be a psychologist when I was growing up. And I raised my hand <laughs> and, you know, a couple other people did too. And he was like, that's ridiculous. No one, no kid wants to be a psychologist. Um, it's, you know, it's not like a cool job that kids want to be and kind of in this way of like, he's making it cool. I don't know. But so I don't like him because <laughs> he was rude to me and he doesn't know that he was rude to me. So just want to note that for any bias that could come up in this episode. Um, so for this episode, I'm going to focus on two areas of controversies with Dr. Phil that I think highlight some of the more dubious ethical natures of his work. And then later on at the end of the episode, I'm going to talk about the different types of licenses and protected terms that apply to therapists. Because one thing that I often see in relationship to Dr. Phil is people referencing the fact that he does not have a license to practice therapy and saying that therefore he's not a real doctor, that he's not actually Dr. Phil. And that's actually not true. He can call himself doctor because he does have a doctorate. He cannot call himself a licensed psychologist because he doesn't have a license. But I'm going to talk about that more toward the end. And I do think that that is something that is not very well known in the public. So I'm also going to talk about how you can confirm if someone has a license or not when working with a mental health professional. If you've been listening so far and you're like, who the heck is she talking about? I'll just give you a brief background on Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil McGraw is a psychologist who became famous in the late 1990s after he was featured on Oprah Winfrey's talk show. Um, which, and then a few years later in 2002, he got his own show. He originally met Oprah because he was a consultant for her during her beef libel lawsuit. Uh, she hired him at, to help her kind of approach her messaging around the court case and kind of just like how to be brave during the thing. And I think he did some 
consulting in terms of like their jury selection. Um, but that's how they met. And then she platformed him because she thought that he was so wonderful and she loved his kind of like tough love approach. The beef libel lawsuit is its own <laughs> whole shenanigans. So if you want to know more about that, I highly recommend uh, Maintenance Phase did a two part episode on the beef libel lawsuit and how Oprah got swept up in that, which I think is a very interesting. If you're interested in like health information, mis- health information and misinformation communication. So that was how Dr. Phil met her. He had graduated from the University of North Texas with a doctoral degree. So he has a PhD in clinical psych. And then he did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Wilmington Institute in forensic psychology. So you often see him referred to as a clinical and forensic psychologist because of this postdoc that he did. He was a licensed practicing therapist in Texas up through the 90s until he moved to California to launch his show where he let his license in Texas lapse by 2003 and, as I'll talk about later, never applied for a California license. So that's Dr. Phil. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with the first controversy that I want to talk about. And this is a broad one because it is about his multiple weight loss programs that he has created. Dr. Phil has at least three weight loss books that he's written over the years. He has the Shape Up Weight Loss Program, the Weight Lo- Ultimate Weight Loss Challenge, and the 2020 Diet. And I'm going to be mostly talking about the Shape Up and the Weight Loss Challenge. The 2020 Diet although it seems like it should have come out in 2020. <laughs> it came out in 2015, and I haven't seen as much stuff about it, so I'm, I'm not going to go into it too much. But the other two have resulted in a lawsuit and some other complaints, so I think that they are important to talk about. So if we go back in time to 2003, 20 years ago, when Dr. Phil was first starting out on his own after he'd launched out of Oprah's show, he created this program called the Shape Up Weight Loss Program. And it it had a book with it, but it also consisted of a kind of monthly subscription plan where you would pay $120 a month and you would get these supplements sent to you. And the supplements required you to take 22 pills a day and were billed as not build as medications, but build as, I guess, things that could, quote, help you change your behavior to take control of your weight, unquote. I don't know about you, but taking 22 pills a day is sounds exhausting. I feel like it would take me 15 minutes, like, minimum to take those pills. Like, I, I have to take a pill at a time where I'm not throwing back handfuls of pills. And that seems like a lot uh, of like commitment for a weight loss program. I digress. Um, What happened though was that three customers sued Dr. Phil over false claims about the pills. And I'm just going to pause right here to say, yes, of course, you cannot claim that a supplement can have these types of impact on you. And if you don't know this, supplements are not regulated in the same way that medications are regulated. So if you go to your grocery store and you go to the like vitamin aisle and all those fancy bottles of like biotin and vitamin B and et cetera, those are not regulated like Tylenol is or like prescription medications like uh, Lexapro or Ozempic, right? Those are medications that are regulated by the FDA. Supplements are not regulated by the FDA in the same way. I mean, they, they have to like not kill you. <laughs> they, gotta, they have to meet like the bare minimum that they can't kill you. But they, the way they get around this is that supplement people who make supplements cannot make any claims about what the supplements do. And then the FDA will say what you can put whatever you want in there. So as long as if, if you're selling vitamin B supplements. As long as you don't say that those pills can cure anything or make any significant changes to you, you can sell those vitamin B pills all day long and you could put sawdust in them all day long, which is what a lot of supplements are. (laughs) However, if you start to say, well, my vitamin B pills will definitely cure your cancer, you're going to get in a lot of trouble because you cannot say that because 
you didn't go through the regulation process to back that up with information, right? When a new antidepressant comes on the market, there has to be lots of data to back it up to show that this actually has an impact on somebody's depression. So Dr. Phil got in hot water because he claimed that these supplements could have these significant impacts on your behavior. He he gets sued by the three people. He never admits to any wrongdoing, but ends up settling out of court. He settles a lawsuit out of court to the tune of $10.5 million, which I believe ended up getting put into a trust where people who had bought these supplements could get refunds, get their money back for the supplements that obviously didn't do what they said. The FTC also got involved because if you're making false claims through advertising, the FTC is who's going to come get you. And they made the company who produced the supplements shut down production of the pills because it violated their false advertising rules. Because you cannot say that this thing that has no evidence is going to cure or change something about somebody's body if they take the supplement. So that was Dr. Phil's kind of first foray into the weight loss game. And it was not, it was not great. It ended and it did not well. I think getting sued by people is probably the last outcome I would want out of making a weight loss book. But it definitely did not stop Philly from continuing to dip his toes into the weight loss pool. In fact, in the next year, by 2004, he had written another book called The Ultimate Weight Loss Challenge and conducted segments on his show that were called The Ultimate Weight Loss Race or The Ultimate Weight Loss Challenge. It's, it's hard to tell. You can't find these anywhere. Um, but it, basically the premise was he had 13 people compete in a weight loss challenge over a period of, I think, 10 months. It was a pretty standard like weight loss competition show. These were very popular in the early 2000s. I'm thinking of like the biggest loser, but the difference was Dr. Phil wanted to focus on like the mental health side and he had um, a lot of materials about like emotional triggers for eating and how people's like psychology contributes to their weight gain. Although, unfortunately, much to the tune of The Biggest Loser, anytime you find clips of this show online, it is in that annoying, exploitative way where it's clearly that the purpose of the show is that people in bigger bodies are the entertainment and making them perform exercises or challenges that will display their bodies is part of the entertainment. And I talk a little bit about this in my episode on why we like reality TV, but this is why I don't like these weight loss or like fitness challenge reality shows, competition shows, because it's very, very, it's pretty much explicit. It's so implicit. It's so unimplicit that it's explicit, um, that the purpose is to laugh at and find entertainment in the people's bodies who are on the screen. And my evidence for this is that whenever you watch these shows, and this is true of Dr. Phil's show, whenever you watch these shows, particularly in the first few episodes of the season, after we've gotten the backstories of the participants and, you know, they set up the rules and the challenges and all that stuff, we then often see them start to do the, like, exercise challenges. And with Dr. Phil's show, what it was was they brought all these people out to L.A. and they brought them to the beach for a day of exercise and they paired them with personal trainers who then go on to say, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to whip you into shape. This is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And they have them do, like, a 90-minute workout on the beach, on the sand, which if you've ever (laughs) done that, it's really hard. And, you know, to contrast that with then you have these contestants who are saying like, I've been struggling with my weight for a long time. I don't have an exercise practice. You know, I struggle because I'm like a single mom or, you know, I work three jobs and I don't have time to exercise. And then, and just because they have, they are fat, they put them on this beach and make them exercise for 90 minutes in, in a way that's like, that's not how you get someone to start exercising. You don't just immediately throw them into the hardest type of exercise and then say, work backwards from there. Like if you really want to change someone's behavior, you scaffold and you start small with something that was within their zone of ability to do. So, you know, if you've ever seen these workout plans that are like couch to 5k, they start really small. They'll start with like walk half a mile, walk a mile, you know, walk three days a week, rest a few days. Like you don't even start running until a few weeks into these plans. And that's how you help someone build a habit and a behavior 
versus throwing them into the deep end and expecting them to figure out how to swim. And so long story short, this is why I don't like these types of shows because it's just so clear that the spectacle is look at these people and these bodies that are amusing just because of their size and look how funny it is that they don't know how to use those bodies or how to take care or whatever of these bodies. And that is the joke. That is the joke of The Biggest Loser. That is the joke of Dr. Phil's show. That is the joke of these types of shows. And it's really, really frustrating to see because there's lots of reasons why someone might be fat or be in a bigger body. There are a lot of reasons that contribute to weight. And diet and exercise is one piece of the pie, I hate to say, but it is only one slice of the picture. And these types of shows don't account for the fact that there are genetic reasons, there are hormonal reasons, there are medical conditions, there are environmental factors that lead people to have different types of weight. And so just saying we're going to fix it with diet and exercise is a band-aid at best and humiliating at worst. And yeah, so that's my little soapbox about why I think these shows are really frustrating. And it's disappointing to see someone like Dr. Phil, who's saying he's a mental health advocate, you know, a mental health person, then participating in the same trend of the, you know, grotesque entertainment of the fat body is what he's doing. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying don't put fat people on TV. It's <laughs> not at all what I'm saying. But this is a, a piece of representation matters, right? The way that you represent fat people on TV matters. And if the way that you represent them is only by showing them as being not able to exercise, being out of control in their eating, being miserable, then you're not doing a justice to a community who are diverse in their experiences. So not to call Dr. Phil out too much from the past, but way to contribute to fat phobia. (laughs) The other part of this show that is a little egregious in my opinion is that because it was 10 months, which is, I think, much longer than typical, you know, reality shows are, and and the people did get to stay in their own houses. They were only in the LA house for like one week, but most of the time they were at home with their, their families, their support systems, and they had access to like personal trainers and nutritionists that Dr. Phil paid for. But part of the show was that every contestant got to have a one-on-one with Dr. Phil, which was, of course, on the show. You can't have that be done privately, um, where he would have them on and get in their faces with his tough love approach about their weight and would start off by asking all the contestants, why are you so fat? And even asked one girl, when did you decide to give up and be the fat girl? Again, not... Not very affirming, not, not very supportive, and puts this kind of personal responsibility spin on weight loss and bodies and puts this like responsibility on the, the client or the participant that you've done something to make yourself this way. I'm also not a big fan of the tough love approach. I don't think that it is helpful for people. I think that there are some people that want that, and if that's what they want, then you can give them that. But I think across the board or like a baseline starting point is not tough love. It should not be tough love, especially when you're also working around with people's mental health. It should, the approach should be curiosity, openness, and exploring, you know, what would work for you. I'm assuming that if someone applied for this show, they want Dr. Phil's approach of tough love. I will also say I think a lot of people want tough love until they're getting tough love because tough love is tough for a reason. And there's also a difference between holding firm to a boundary in a loving and compassionate way versus screaming at someone and calling it tough love. And I find that Dr. Phil tends to fall on that side of the spectrum a lot more where he just gets in people's faces and antagonizes them and then says, well, this is tough love. And when I was researching for the show, I was watching a clip on Oprah's show about when she was kind of first introducing Dr. Phil to her audience. And someone in her audience asked him, you do this like kind of tough love approach and I don't like that. I don't, I don't think that it'll work for me. And to his credit, he was like, if it doesn't work for you, then, you know, you don't have to follow my advice or, you know, buy into my approach. It's just, this is the way that I do it. And then he immediately pivots into like, sometimes you need it and you need someone to just like be real with you and blah, blah. And it's like, okay, (laughs) you can, you can be real with someone 
and not call them names. Or you can be real with someone and not raise the tone of your voice. You can be real with someone and also be kind to them. So I think that he hides behind this like, well, I'm doing the tough love approach when it's like, well, yeah, you're doing the tough approach, but I'm not hearing the love approach. <laughs> I'm not hearing the, the, the after part where you're like, hey, I just had to tell you something real and hard to say, but I'm here to support you and let's kind of process how that landed for you. So that is, uh, and I think just applying that to someone who is struggling with their weight, which is an incredibly sensitive topic in our society. And if you think about, if you take your mind back to 2004, although the cultural discourse around weight has not improved that much, it was very bad in 2004. This was when there were literal huge sections of tabloids that were just dedicated to tracking like which female celebrities had gained or lost weight. And there were, there would be pictures like Mariah Carey, who is like a size two at the time. And they would say like, oh, look who's got chunky thighs. Look who's, you know, sporting around town with her chunky thighs. And it's like, a size two? (laughs) Size two is not chunky thighs? That's crazy. So I also think that we have to like contextualize this in the time that it was happening, that this kind of like, your body is... I'm allowed to have opinions on your body. Your body is up for public discourse. Fueled a lot of these shows as well. I will say he has scrubbed. Well, I don't know if it's him specifically, but the show has been pretty much scrubbed from YouTube. It's really hard to find clips. They're not on his website either, but I was able to find a few. A lot of them were very like product placement-y, like they got sponsored by a heart rate monitoring company and they're like making the people wear the heart rate monitor. Um, But It's very clear that a lot of the program is really just based on you have to exercise more and eat better to lose the weight. And although he talks about there being this emotional and mental health component, a lot of what is shown on the show is really about exercise and diet. And that may be for the entertainment perspective, um, but I think it's just hard to make a one-size-fits-all approach to the mental and emotional health consequences of eating and vice versa. So it's it's tough to make anything that's going to help everyone because it is such an individualized uh, journey. So on top of these weight loss books that he has written or these weight loss challenges that he's done, he also promotes a lot of fad diets and he promotes some very interesting conversations about body acceptance. The most egregious example of fad diets that he promotes is something called the 17-day diet by Dr. Mike Moreno, which is where you start off at 1,200 calories a day. And then every 17 days, you like change how many calories you're eating and what types of food you're eating. So you're like on these cycles because Dr. Mike Moreno believes that your metabolism is like a toddler and you have to keep constantly moving, dancing photos around in front of it to keep it distracted. And if your metabolism is distracted, then you can't possibly gain weight. Now, I'm going to stay within my scope here. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian. So I, you know, I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm not going to make any recommendations about what you should eat or whatever, but I'm going to guess that the claim that your metabolism can be easily tricked is not very evidence-based and probably doesn't have a lot of data backing it up and feels very counter to the idea in biology that our body is trying to get to homeostasis. If we're trying to consistently trick our body, it's going to be counter to the body's purpose, which is homeostasis and stability, but I digress. Um, so this this diet is where you, you start off at 1,200 calories a day. Now for context, standard caloric intake for an adult woman is about 2,000 calories a day, and for adult men, 2,500. So if you are ta- doing the 17-day diet as an adult woman, you are going to be at an 800-calorie deficit, and if you're an adult man, you're going to be at a 1,300-caloric intake deficit every day for the first 17 days that you're on this diet. That is too big of a caloric intake deficit. I can tell you right now that if I was working with a client who told me that they were only eating 1,200 calories a day consistently, we would be talking about treatment for an eating disorder or disordered eating. That it's not enough calories. That is such a big deficit. And by because this program is also asking these people to exercise, or I don't know if Mike Reno specifically has an exercise regimen, but he he does like encourage exercise as well, you're going to be at more than an 800 calorie deficit if you're exercising and already cutting yourself off so low. This can be very triggering for people who have struggled with eating disorders or struggled with body image. 
having someone at such a low calorie deficit can can be dangerous for re-triggering or triggering a new eating disorder. And it can be dangerous because people tend to want to come in under their goal. They, they're, especially when their focus is on losing weight, they're going to say, okay, I don't want to go over 1200. So I'm going to hit for 1000 or 900, right? They're going to come in. Then not everyone does this, but a portion of people do this. So they purposefully restrict more to not hit that 1200 limit. So now what are you supposed to do if someone is at over a thousand or 1300 calorie deficit a day? Like that can be really dangerous. And I know that after 17 days you switch it up, but you cycle through this if you're on this diet. So you're going to head back to the 1200 at some point, And he definitely does not have you immediately go back to 2000 for the second cycle. And I was watching a clip of Dr. Mike Moreno on Dr. Phil's show promoting this diet. And he brings people, he brings pictures of people, their before and after pictures of being on his diet. And he shows that they've lost like these massive amounts of weight. It'll be like 40 pounds lost, 60 pounds lost, 80 pounds lost. And he's got the before and after pictures up there. And they're talking about like, this is incredible. And you can shed the pounds and blah, blah, blah. And just from a a math perspective, if you are eating at an 800 calorie deficit for 17 days, so this is more than two weeks, you are going to be losing weight because you are not eating enough. You are not eating enough. You are in starvation mode. Yes, you are going to lose weight and you are going to lose it quickly. And it is not a healthy way to lose weight. I am do not do this, right? If you are going, if you need to lose weight, you need to talk to a, your own medical provider and not Dr. Mike Moreno and definitely not Dr. Phil. But people are going to lose weight very quickly because they're at this massive caloric deficit. The problem is, is that what the research tells us is people who do these types of diets where you drop a lot of weight at the beginning because it's mostly about restricting calories is they gain that weight back. And sometimes they gain more than the weight that they lost back after they get off of the diet. Because eating at 1200 calories a day is not sustainable for long term. It is not a lifestyle choice that you can make. It will result in complications ranging from things like malnutrition to other like health complications. So again, if you need to lose weight, please, please, please talk to your own doctor who knows your health history. Do not follow these fad diets. They only result in things that we call boomerang dieting, which is where you drop a lot of weight, you immediately gain it back when you stop the diet, and then so you start a new diet to drop weight again. And it's just, those are, those are, those types of diets are not good for your body, and they're also not good for your mental health. To be constantly bouncing back and forth in terms of your body image, being malnourished where your brain is not getting enough nutrients and fats and good things, it can be really detrimental to your mental health as well. So please, please, please work with your own medical provider who knows you and your medical history. Do not follow these crazy diets. And the fact that Dr. Phil promotes these types of things and promotes this like sensationalized talking about how much weight people have lost is really disappointing to me because as a fellow psychologist, (laughs) he should know that behavior does not change that quickly. That in order for behavior change to be long lasting, you have to scaffold, you have to build up to it, you have to find ways to reinforce the behavior until it is something that like works for the person and slots into their life. You cannot make massive leaping changes and think that they'll stick around forever. And if you really want people to be healthy, Dr. Phil, then you'll promote these more long-term lifestyle change approaches rather than these fad diets where you're bouncing back and forth between caloric intakes and exercise programs. So in short, it just really upsets me that not only does he keep dipping his toes in the weight loss pool, but he promotes these people who do things that I think are not great (laughs) and potentially dangerous because they are promoted in this kind of like one size fits all way to his audience. And I know that they get on there and they give their little disclaimers and they say, talk to your doctor. But the it, it that gets lost when you're showing these like before and after pictures of people losing massive amounts of weight and saying, this has worked for everyone that I've worked with and blah, blah, blah. Like the, the please go talk to your doctor gets lost in the excitement of this could be the thing that finally helps me lose the weight or finally fixes what I think is wrong with me. I just think Dr. Phil should stay in his lane maybe not touch weight loss. It doesn't seem to be something he's very good at um, because he did get sued over it at least once. Um, and yeah, I just think stick to the, you can you can talk about the mental health aspects of health all you want, but I think we should just, let's 
pull our feet out of the weight loss pool. Okay. Mental health professionals, let's all pull those little toes out of that little pool. (laughs) It's not, it's not for us to be giving advice on. (laughs) So before we're going to take a quick little break and then we're going to jump into the next section, which is all about his interview with Shelly Duvall in 2016. And we're back. Before I start this section, I just have to say we love Shelly Duvall on this podcast. If you want to hear a little bit more about her, I would say go listen to my episode on The Shining because I talk about her lived experience being on The Shining and being like one of the only women in that production. Um, And she has talked very genuinely, authentically about her experience um, with that movie. So check that out if you want more. So, in 2016, Dr. Phil had Shelley Duvall on his show to do an interview um, with her about her kind of mental health status at the time. Keeping in mind that Shelley Duvall had left Hollywood in, I want to say, like, the 80s or 90s. She had left Hollywood, like, a, a long time ago and had actually been living in Austin, Texas, or near Austin, Texas, in seclusion for a while. I believe the original reason had been to take care of her mother and then she just kind of uh, stopped getting parts and stopped um, going out for auditions. So people had not really had any contact with her. And then Dr. Phil took it upon himself to hunt this woman down. And in, so I will say I watched the entire interview. It is a 40 minute it's, it's on YouTube. People have re-uploaded it if you want to watch it. Uh, I do not recommend it. It is really, really tough. Um, in the interview, she makes some odd statements about believing that Robin Williams was still alive. This was after he had died. She talks about having like listening devices inside of her about like an insect that crawls crawled inside of her a lot of very tangential thinking so she would jump from like sentence to sentence jump from thought to thought some like paranoia present in the way that she talked about things Um, and she even says in the interview that she's very sick she also if you do watch it or you've seen it um i will just point out she she makes this sound in the back of her throat when she's talking it sounds like her throat is like she's closing it up and down this is often a symptom of schizophrenia or other types of psychotic disorders these types of um involuntary muscle spasms so although you know i I, i'm not diagnosing her because i was not present or working with her there are some things that she does that would point to whatever's going on for her. She appears to be in the midst of a psychotic episode. The way that Dr. Phil approaches this is he has her he has her talk and and the one good thing that he does is he does not challenge the things that she's saying that are delusional, bordering on the line of of a delusion. He he does not challenge it directly. He just tries to get more information from her and I will say that that is the like appropriate way to talk to someone who's in a psychotic episode you do not debate the delusion you don't try to challenge it especially when it's a situation like this where they're kind of first meeting and you're getting a sense of what's going on that is the only good thing about this interview the rest of it is absolutely it's it's horrible it's horrible to watch he contrasts her current appearance with her past appearance like literally we'll put up pictures of her like clips of her from the interview next to clips of her from when she was really big in the 70s and 80s and we'll talk about how like she looks like he says she looks bad and it's like, okay, Dr. Phil, you're no spring peach over there. Like, the, her physical appearance is not any indicator of her, her like, well-being. And the subtext there is that, oh, she used to be hot and now she's ugly. Which it's like, okay, Dr. Phil, women do not exist just to be beautiful for you. Like, let me cut her some slack on what her physical appearance is. And then he'll interject. He interjects twice throughout the entire 40 minutes. There are two segments where he does what he calls psychoeducation, where he takes, like, he uses his little smart board and he takes quotes from the interview and shows how they demonstrate 
things like clang associations, which are uh, when someone who is having a psychotic episode or has a psychotic disorder, they make connections between words that sound similar but don't mean the same thing. So, like, if you're if someone was talking and they said, like, uh, I don't know, Heathcliff, Cliff Bar, uh, jump off a cliff, right? Like, they string all of those things together with like and and you listening to it are like I don't know how Heathcliff relates to a cliff bar relates to jumping off of a cliff that is an example of a clang associate it's just like the something about the sound of the words like gets connected in the person's head and even if they're talking about one topic they'll bring in those other words regardless of if they relate or not and this is why he has defended this interview is because he says that it's a way to demonstrate what psychosis looks like for the general public and that he's educating people and i would say that is the thinnest possible defense he could have for this display i think that there are ways to do this there are ways to show people who are having psychotic episodes in a way that is respectful i think that there are there are documentaries that i've watched where like consent has been given by the person when they are not in a psychotic episode or has been given by their caregiver who has like the custody, not the custody, but like the legal capability to make consent for that. Shelley Duvall has said that she was, she felt like she was being harassed by these people. She uh, basically, they, they kind of like, from what she has said and what her partner Dan Gilroy has said is that they were in contact with her and basically got her to agree to do this interview with and like not tell her partner that she was going on the interview because they knew that he would have tried to stop it and after the interview Shelly has said that Dr. Phil and his team tracked down her mother and tried to get it Shelly had no contact with him anymore but she he tried to get in touch with her through her mother and would not leave her alone and she felt very harassed by that understandably so so this does not seem to be the most i don't i don't think she was really in a place where she could truly consent to what was going on and i don't think she really knew what was going on with the interview because the interview concludes with a nurse some some nurse that Dr. Phil has on retainer taking Shelly to the airport because they are in Texas, taking her in the airport to Las Vegas to go to one of Dr. Phil's treatment facilities that he partners with. As they are going to the airport, Shelly starts to say that she's being molested by the nurse. So the police are called. I think it's like they're in a, a ride chair or a taxi or something. Or they may even have been at the airport. I don't know. It's hard to tell from the clips, but they show this all in the episode. She says she's being molested. The cops come they have to like clear that um, Shelly does know who these people are. The cops end up leaving her her in the care of this nurse. They fly to Vegas and they're driving her to this house and she's starting to become really agitated. And she's saying things like, um, you're gonna, you're trying to get me. You're, you know, you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to sneak me somewhere. I don't know where I'm going. And she unbuckles her seatbelt and it looks like she's going to try to, jump out of the car she luckily does not Um, but then we find out from his kind of like post episode spiel that they kept her at this treatment center for three days she refused to take any medication and she refused to sign the paperwork for treatment so they were no longer able to keep her there so they took her back to texas dr phil claims that once they took her back to texas they got her connected with local providers to help her manage her symptoms without medication because she did not want to take psychiatric medication. This is the exploitative part of Dr. Phil's overall model is he consistently offers treatment to people in his treatment centers or the treatment centers that he is affiliated with. There's absolutely zero reason for Shelley Duvall to be flown across the country to go to a residential treatment center. The only reason that I could think of is the money that someone might make off of getting a celebrity referral to come to a treatment facility. If it was possible for her to be treated by providers that are local to her area, why was the plan to ever fly her to Vegas when she is agitated, confused, paranoid, 
all the things that he says about her, why would the best case scenario be to fly someone halfway across the country and then check them into a facility that they don't know and are unaware of why they're being checked into the facility? And this is where Dr. Phil always has his defense is that, well, I offered them treatment. He says this about pretty much everyone that comes on to his show. Well, I offered them full inpatient treatment and he'll say that they declined because he kept, he, he consistently says since 2016, has said, we did everything that we could do for Shelly, but she declined treatment. And he, he's done this for other people that he's had on his show. I think even, or he'll, with the kids, he'll say, we're going to send them to the ranch and he sends them to those troubled teens programs. But he'll, he'll consistently say, well, they declined treatment, so there's nothing more that we can do for them because they declined treatment. Well, you, you offered one, one type of treatment. Um, you offered the most restrictive type of treatment. And of course, people are going to say no to that because you're asking them to uproot their entire lives because these treatment facilities, it's not like he has a treatment facility that he partners with in every city. He has like a handful of them, which is why Shelly was taken to Vegas and not able to stay in Austin. So they'd have to uproot their lives. And then you're connecting them with providers that they're not going to have continuity of care with. If you get, typically, if you get discharged from an inpatient facility, this, this is the best case scenario, you're supposed to get something called discharge planning, where the treatment team kind of sits down and says, what does this person need when they leave the hospital? And what resources do we have that we can connect them to? So for example, if you got hospitalized at uh, like a county or state hospital in your area, they might say, we've uh, booked an appointment for you at a community mental health center for a week after you get out of the hospital. We will have a social worker from the hospital call you two weeks later, uh, you know, make sure that you went to your appointment and then we'll have a 90 day supply of your meds before we can connect you with a psychiatrist in the community. That's like, (laughs) I know that doesn't always happen, but that's supposed, that's how it's supposed to go. But the idea is that like you, the, the assumption is you were hospitalized in an area where you already live so we can plug you into those community resources. What community resources is Shelly Duvall going to participate in that are in Vegas if she lives in Austin? Like, so even from the jump, here we go. We have this, we have this treatment being offered to her that is not sustainable. She's not going to have continuity of care unless these people in Vegas somehow are incredibly connected to the providers of Austin. Additionally, he only offers inpatient treatment. He, he, it wasn't until she declined vehemently and legally declined that he provided her with outpatient treatment or helped her connect her with outpatient treatment, but he always jumps to inpatient treatment. And I would just like to use this as a jumping off point to let my listeners know that having psychotic symptoms does not mean you need to be hospitalized or institutionalized. Have just the the presence of a hallucination or a delusion does not mean that you need to be 5150 or whatever the equivalent is wherever you live. Psychosis can be managed in the least restrictive type of treatment successfully. There are lots of people who have psychotic disorders or psychotic symptoms that are able to manage their symptoms through outpatient treatment. I have worked with people like that. I know lots of colleagues who work with people like that. It is often much more successful to treat someone with those types of symptoms when they are in a comfortable environment like their home, connected to their social support network that lives in their home or you know around them, and ha- are in a familiar environment. Locking someone up in an institution just because they hear voices or endorse delusional thoughts is not best treatment and can do a lot of damage. If the person is experiencing psychosis and that psychosis is contributing to them wanting to hurt themselves or others or leads them to be gravely disabled, which is a term that it's a legal term that basically means unable to take care of their basic needs, then inpatient treatment may be needed. From what I saw and from what Dr. Phil tells us on the interview, Shelley Duvall was not wanting to hurt herself. She was not wanting to hurt others. And she was not gravely disabled. She did need some support. She had some medical concerns that I think, you know, warranted some extra support. But she didn't have anything that would meet the criteria for being involuntarily institutionalized or even voluntarily institutionalized. So for all of his claims that he did this interview for it to be psychoeducational, he, uh, I don't, where's psychoed? Like, okay, you, you talked about clang associations and tangential thinking, 
but okay <laughs> like those are things that you like anyone could google if they really wanted to or you could talk about those things without using a real life person who's actively in the middle of a psychotic episode you could even use a tv show or a movie like i do on this podcast where i'll highlight examples from fictional characters where no one is being harmed by the depiction of these symptoms and then he does d- damage in terms of psycho ed in presenting that oh she's so she's so bad that she has to go to inpatient treatment there's no way for her to be healthy unless she goes to inpatient treatment that is sending the wrong message that is so counter and that's counter to what is recommended and it's counter to what people are going to find if if anyone listening to this experiences a psychotic symptom and you go seek help people you're you're not going to get locked up right away people are going to your provider is going to work with you they're going to probably recommend a medication they're going to recommend supportive therapy especially if it's like this is the first time that you've experienced one it's it's a different story if someone has been like chronically experiencing psychosis there are maybe other factors that lead to them needing more support or institutionalization but it's it's it is not that just because you meet the criteria of something like schizophrenia, you're getting locked up. It's not 1887 anymore. So overall, I think Dr. Phil did Shelley Duvall incredibly dirty. I will recommend, if you go to my sources page, there is an article by Seth Abramovich called Searching for Shelley Duvall that was published in The Hollywood Reporter. It is really good. It's um, very, like, in, in talks about the Dr. Phil interview um, in it. And I think if you want to hear from Shelley Duvall herself about some of these experiences and why she has the life that she has now, I, I highly recommend reading it. Okay, we're going to leave Shelley where she is. And I'm going to move on to my last point for this episode, which is just kind of going over what a license means and what types of licenses there are for mental health providers. I'm tying this to Dr. Phil because Dr. Phil is not a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California. He has never been a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California. When he started his show, he had an active license in the state of Texas, but he did not apply for a license when he moved to California. And the Board of Psychology in California determined that he did not need a license to do his show because the show was more entertainment than it was treatment. If you're unfamiliar, the Board of Psychology in California is the body that provides licenses to psychologists only. So these are people who have PsyDs or PhDs in things like clinical or counseling psychology. If you see someone with a license like an LMFT or an LCSW, which we'll talk about a little differently, they go through a different board. The Board of Psychology is just for psychologists. The Board of Psychology, or BOP, is a consumer protection board, which means their job is to make sure anyone claiming the title of licensed psychologist is providing safe and appropriate care for the consumers. They are not an advocacy group for psychologists. They are not like the APA, which is the American Psychological Association. That is a professional organization or like a trade organization that supports and advocates for psychologists. The board is kind of our enemy. (laughs) They hate us because their job is to make sure we are doing what we're supposed to do, right? That we're following our ethical guidelines and we're following all of the legal guidelines for the state. Each state has their own version of this. In fact, Texas has their own board, which granted Dr. Phil his license there. But across the states, no matter what they are, the boards that license psychologists are there to protect consumers and so they are, they are tough on psychologists because they are protecting their consumers. And it is important. I'm not, I'm not saying that the board is bad at all. I'm saying they are very important. And it is important for you as a consumer to know that they are actually on your side. They are not there to protect the psychologists. And will take licenses away from psychologists if there are complaints leveraged against them that they find credible. So in 2002, the board was like, um, you actually don't need a license to do what you're doing because you're doing this for entertainment. You're not actually providing like therapeutic treatment. So Dr. Phil never had to apply for a license in California. He was licensed in the state of Texas. Uh, he let that license lap in 2006. He did have a complaint filed against him through that board in Texas in 1988 because he hired a former patient to work part-time for his clinical practice, 
which is an ethical no-no because it violates the ethics of dual relationships. So as a therapist, we are only supposed to have one relationship with you, which is that we are your therapist. This is why we do not do therapy with our families because I cannot be your daughter and your therapist or your sister and your therapist. That's dual roles. This is why we cannot date our clients because I cannot be your partner and your therapist. That's too confusing. The same refers to like going into business with each other. You have to be those are like, le- there's like some situations where that might be okay, which is like why sometimes you see people write books with their therapists. That doesn't happen as much. It happened a lot more in the 80s or the 70s. Um, but like you're, you are supposed to be very, very careful if you're going to enter into like a business relationship with a, a client and they cannot be a current client for sure. This was his former patient, which is why they didn't just like immediately revoke his license, but they put some sanctions on him. He ultimately complied with all the sanctions and they closed the complaint in 1990. So his license was never revoked. He resolved the complaint um, successfully and his license was fine until he he let it lapse himself in 2006. I think that that is important to bring up because a lot of people will say, oh, he's not really Dr. Phil because he doesn't have a license. The license is not what makes you a doctor or not. The degree is what makes you a doctor. He has a doctoral degree, doc being the (laughs) crucial word there. He has a doctoral degree. That's what makes you a doctor. I am currently finishing my license. I don't have my license yet, but I'm still Dr. Fowler because I have a doctoral degree. I have a PhD that makes me doctor. The license is what makes you able to say you're a licensed clinical psychologist. I cannot say that about myself because I don't have a license yet. Dr. Phil cannot say that about himself because he does, He never had a license in California. The license does not make you doctor. So you'll see that online. You'll say people saying he's not a real doctor. He, he has a doctorate. He is Dr. Phil. He's just not qualified to give you treatment. <laughs> he's not He's not operating under the, the, um, the guidelines of the board because he doesn't have a license. I've seen some people say that because he technically doesn't bill for his services, like if you go on his show, he's not billing you like for the hour that he's talking with you. So he's not covered by HIPAA either. HIPAA actually only applies to situations where you are like paying for services or like or insurance is paying for it for you so HIPAA does not technically cover Dr. Phil so that's why he can have people on his show and like blast all of their personal information to all of his viewers so tangentially bring it back around that's one type of license that you can get there is a license that is specifically for psychologists psychologists are people who have to have a PhD or a PsyD in clinical psychology, counseling psychology, or sometimes you can get like industrial organizational psychology and still get a a license to practice clinical work, but it's typically clinical or counseling psychology. Psychologists can do therapy and they can do assessment. So they can do psychological evaluations and neuropsych testing. That, That is what makes them really stand out from other types of mental health licenses because they have this extra thing that they can do, which is the, the evaluation. We then have Clinical social workers, so these, if you see the letters LCSW, LICSW, ACSW after someone's name, those are typically clinical social workers. They need to have a master's of social work and a license to use the term, to use the the term LCSW or say licensed clinical social worker. Social workers can do therapy, they can do case management, and they're often trained in advocacy work. If you see someone that is using uh, an ACSW or a LCSW, like the, it's different depending on what state you are, but typically if there's an A attached to it, it means they are an associate. So they don't have their license yet, but they are operating under a supervisor and accruing those hours to become licensed on their own. But it's important that you see the LCSW, particularly in California. I don't know what it is everywhere else, but you can look it up. But you want to see the L for licensed if you're working with a clinical social worker to know that they have a license. Uh, Then we have under counselor, there's like two main ones. There's LPCs, which are licensed professional counselors, and MFTs, which are marriage and family therapists. Both of these, they typically just do therapy. Um, For either one, you need a master's degree in in either something like psychology, uh, marriage and family therapy, or counseling, and a license to use the letters LPC or LMFT, which is licensed marriage and family therapy. 
Uh, this one also, if you see an A or with the LPCs, I think it's like LPCC, uh, that typically means they're an associate or it's LPC-A. It means they're associate, they're unlicensed and working with a supervisor. So they're very similar to clinical social workers. They just have different training um, and they tend to not be as trained in the case management. Social work is unique in that they typically have those um, more like resource-based skills than counselors or psychologists. Then, then we have uh, what are called KDACs or LKDACs. These are um, drug and alcohol counselors. They are pretty much only able to do substance use counseling, um, maybe some case management, but their main focus is working with substance use. And you have to complete a certification program and have a license to register with the, the system to use that term. So kind of like an order of who's been in school the longest, psychologists, Typically, doctoral degrees are much longer in terms of school, clinical social workers and counselors, their master's degrees are usually about the same. And then drug and alcohol counselors, it's, it's I think, about 300 hours of a cert certificate program. So however long it takes you to do that, a lot of those are like online programs, um, but they also have the smallest scope in terms of what they can do. So if you find yourself looking for a mental health professional, those are the types of licenses that you might see. So if you see those letters after someone's name, you can assume that they have a license, especially the ones with like the L's, like LMFT or LCSW. And those are protected terms. They, they differ by state. Some of the states use different acronyms, but the kind of levels are about the same. Those are protected terms. You are not allowed to call yourself a licensed clinical psychologist if you do not have a license. So you can get into pretty big trouble if you are representing yourself that way and you don't have a license and it can even come with like legal consequences. However, it still happens. People bill themselves as being licensed or they use fancy terms. So like anyone can say they're a therapist. That's not necessarily a protected term here uh, or even things like life coach. There's like no regulation of that term. So people can say that and it seems like, oh, they must have something, right? They must have some sort of certification. Um, but the easiest way or the fastest way to check if someone is licensed is to go to the NPPES NPI registry. The NPI or National Provider Identifier Registry is basically a list of everyone who is licensed in the U.S. and I think Canada, maybe. Uh, but everyone who's licensed in the U.S., you can look up to see what type of license that they have. If you, so you, all you have to do is go to the registry and put in the person's name. If a if they are licensed, when you click on their profile, it'll say the state and the license number that they have, which you then can go to whatever state they're in and look up that license to see if there's anything going on with it. There's no like universal way to look those up. You kind of have to go state by state, but hopefully the people you are looking for are in your state because you're supposed to be licensed in the state of the client you are working with. Um, however, there is an exception. If you are working with someone who's unlicensed, so maybe so someone who has a supervisor and is accruing their hours, there will be no license number listed when you look for their name. So if you look someone up, it's best to, and you, and you see that they don't have a license number, I would ask them. Um, it's ethical practice to tell your client that you're unlicensed and the parameters of that. So if you are working with an unlicensed person, you should know up top. If you look into it and notice that they didn't tell you and they don't seem to have a license, I would 100% ask about what's going on because uh, sometimes people haven't updated their NPI. It's, it doesn't get updated automatically. It's something you have to do yourself. So there can be a lag there. Um, and I think if you're an ACSW or an AMFT, you can get you can still have a license number because you get licensed as an associate provider. It's kind of like a... Um, temporary or not full license, so you can still look that information up. Um, and if your provider is unlicensed and they have a supervisor, you can look up the supervisor to see their license number if you're worried as well. I just say that because I think it's best for consumers <laughs> of therapy to know how to check on what's going on because, and this is a big thing to put on Dr. Phil, because of Dr. Phil, it is confusing to navigate this stuff. There's so many acronyms, there's so many titles, and it's confusing. If you're looking at someone and they're saying, I am a therapist, that's not a regulated term, right? That's a vague term that someone can use that can mean a lot of things. So you want to be able to kind of 
protect yourself and be able to understand what's going on. And I think a lot of the assumptions that people make, understandably so, are if someone is a doctor in front of their name, then they must be legit. They must be licensed. But that is not true. That is not what provides you the license to provide therapy. It's what gives you the knowledge that can help you to get licensed to provide therapy. But it is not the end-all be-all of qualifications. So I will end this episode here. I have been talking for way too long about Dr. Phil because he is just a fascinating creature and does things that truly upset me. Um, So I hope that this has been informative and that you can take away some interesting information about fat phobia, about how to look up licenses and, you know, go watch a Shelley Duvall movie. Just go support her. Let her get a little royalty check. Um, And as always, I thank you for listening all the way through to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.